we transition from Christmas to a different series, we're going to look at a little more Christmas stuff today too, but how we, why w- should we trust the Bible? The next three weeks, we're kind of going to look at that. So there's not one particular text here. We're certainly going to look at the Galatians text a little bit, uh, but we'll be kind of moving around to different ones. Uh, looking at, uh, this is an important thing because, you know, our church lifts it up uh, very high uh, about being trustworthy in all that it teaches, uh, reliable in every way, and we'll look at that a little more in, in the third sermon a couple weeks. But uh, for today, you know, you think about, it, I hear this every Christmas, you know, you get skeptics, you know, about thinking that, you know, well, how could a baby be born without a dad? And, you know, that they'll look at the text and think that they're somehow uh, not lining up in Matthew and Luke, and there's certainly ways to do that. And then there'll be a lot of uh, skepticism about the historicity of Christmas. Uh, so you get this a lot uh, at this time. You know, we talk about uh, uh, the great things that we get during this time, and we get people to come that uh, maybe uh, are, are looking for something, and, and so uh, it, it's good too. But when you look at the, the way the authors of the New Testament, uh, they, they were very certain. Uh, they didn't, uh, and we'll look more dep- in depth at that in a little bit. They were, they were certain that Jesus was born of a virgin. That is a very big part of it. It's in the text four or five times. Um, I always thought that was interesting where people struggle with that. I understand it's not very common, uh, but it is God. I mean, he can, I've, I've actually had people say they believe God created everything, but that the virgin birth, they just can't get their mind around. I just don't get that. I mean, like, it seems like God could do it, and I don't want to be flippant about it, but it is, it's something that if you believed one, I don't know why you wouldn't believe the other. Um, the New Testament author said he lived a blameless life that's in there many times, was unfairly executed, and then rose from the grave to prove his deity, among other things. Uh, that's very clear in the New Testament. So we have that, and we're going to look at those too, but it all came down to why does God do what he does and when he does it. You know, and the Apostle Paul wrote that God planned the appearance of Jesus perfectly. You know, we always, why did he come when he came in Galatians? But when the fullness of time had come, which is just a way of saying when it was the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons or children, you could put there. God's timing was, was right. Uh, and as we, we look at it, it was hard for them to know it was right. Uh, and I think, you know, one of the things you look at was language. Language was ever since Babel, there has been a problem with people speaking different languages and trying to understand each other. Well, you get, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, which is a kind of a weird language, I'll have to admit. We had to learn that in seminary. It it's goes the opposite direction, and it's got only a few consonants, and it's really not the easiest language to learn, especially for somebody who's analytical, because you'll get, well, this word 80% of the time means this, but then once in a while means this. Like, All right, how do I know when once in a while? And you do learn kind of that stuff. But one thing that happened, and this was in the second century, a bunch of Jewish scholars got together. The tradition is that we're 70 of them, and that's why you see that LXX there. That's the Roman numeral for 70, and it's called the Septuagint, which is the Greek name for 70. This is the Old Testament in Greek, and that was what Jesus probably learned with. Uh, you get that a lot. So now we get the Greek Old Testament. A lot more people can read that than can read Hebrew. And then, of course, the New Testament is written in Greek. And so in the first century A.D., Greek had become a very common language. There were other languages out there. There was Latin. There was Hebrew. There were Semitic languages and, and local dialects. But Greek was the common. 
And so it was the perfect timing to have the Word of God available to all in Greek because it was, it was Koine Greek. I don't know if that's the, that's the common Greek, not the classical Greek of Homer and, and those types. So almost anybody who knew how to read could read this. So good timing, you know, it, God bringing that on and, and doing that and, and carrying people around. Roads, we talked about this um, during the production, the kids' production uh, on uh, uh, last Saturday. The, the roads were, you know, we, I'm, you know, how many came here on a road? <laughs> See how many people are awake? None. All right. So <laughs> maybe I should ask that. How many didn't come on a road? Then I would get it right. Uh, but I mean, it, we, we just take it for granted, obviously, that the roads, but, you know, people who live in, if you've been to some countries, it's not quite as good. Well, if you go back before Roman times, roads were horrible. You go back a, a millennia, back David's time, you couldn't get from place. It just very localized. It was not safe. Um, you, and you, eventually, even the Greeks, con- you know, Alexander the Great goes across and conquers things in, in 300 B.C.s, and still, they were maritime. They didn't really deal with roads a lot. They sh- did more ships. But when Rome came along, they wanted their empire to be accessible. They wanted commerce, you know. Even think about it, you know, we read that uh, two nights ago, you know, and uh, under Caesar Augustus, it came time for them to be taxed, and they had to go on a Roman road all the way from Nazareth down to Bethlehem, but it was pretty, it was pretty safe because they were safe roads. That's what they were for. It was for commerce, and so it was the perfect time for him to come so people could get there, and then when he grows up, it's the perfect time for the apostles to go out into all the world and preach the gospel because they have roads to go, and you can watch Paul's first, second, third missionary journey. He's just following the roads made by Romans who didn't know probably that they were uh, I don't know, pawns the right word, but uh, uh, used in God's hands uh, to further the gospel in ways. So again, timing. And then you got this prophecy and expectation. We, we did that, uh, the Simeon with, with, uh, with uh, the kids, you know, he's there. Something's in the water, as they say. And then if you read a little further in Luke, you have Anna, who's a prophetess, and she seems to be understanding that who, who this is. That was in the water, the messianic expectation. It had been 400 years since a prophet had spoke. They were ready. Daniel gives us a little bit of timing, though it's kind of hard, and, but people were waiting. Now, we know, obviously, that they struggled with what they were looking for. Uh, I know there's a scene, and I, I, I lift this, if you haven't watched it, you can watch it between Christmas and New Year's here. The Nativity, it came out about 15 years ago. I thought it does a pretty good job of the way uh, it might have happened. they got to obviously add some stuff. But they're going, Mary and Joseph are going into Bethlehem, but they have to go through Jerusalem first. And there's a check because, you know, in this version, the Magi had come and or, or were, they were getting, people were starting to, and Herod was worried and the Messiah was coming and they were like, well, who they were looking for? Here comes Mary and she's pregnant. And the guard looks at her and says, and looks at the guy and the other guard and says, oh, it's just a, it's just a pregnant woman, you know, go ahead, go wherever you're going. You know, they're not looking for a baby. They're looking for a man, you know. And he just grew up, right? And we do get that. But, but you think about, they were looking for a Messiah. Even the Jews were looking for that. In fact, there was a Jewish belief that was very common that we get a Messiah to come and overcome the Romans, and then we'll start worrying about righteousness. Then we'll start worrying, you know, whatever we need to do to get Rome out of here even if we don't follow the law. Well, and then Jesus comes and has that on its head, right? No, it's all about righteousness. It's about becoming right with him 
and then everything else will be added to you. And the kingdom that you get is not even in this world, right? That's the, so timing, God's timing keeps coming. And, and I think when you think about timing, um, a lot of times we don't understand the timing in our own lives, right? You know, why did this happen? You know, where's God's timing? Why is this taking so long? Why isn't this working out the way it should? And, and it's hard for us, too. It was hard for them. You know, they didn't have the New Testament yet. Um, so you, you, you think about timing, and, and you wonder, why did God do it the way he did? And back to that Galatians passage, in the fullness of time, it's just a way of saying this was the right time. And, that, and that's what we kind of have to put the future in God's hands, right? Um, we don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't have the first clue, you know. We think we do. I mean, I've got a calendar that has things on it I'm going to do tomorrow, but God willing, right? You never know. You never know what happens, you know. And so in, in each of our lives, we have to think that through. You know, why is something happening the way it is? I know Kelly prayed about, you know, you go through Christmas and sometimes it's not as fun as you want it to be. Um, but again, God's in charge. God's timing. That's what we're always going for. And so... As we look into why we can trust the Bible, think about that. You know, why did God put it the way he did? Why is our lives the way they are right now? Uh, and then right now we have a very close friend that's in the hospital. And I think, you know, maybe good to pray for her right now. Sherry has uh, had surgery. Went well. But uh, why don't we take some time to pray? Father, we thank you for being with Sherry right now. We thank you for always having the right timing. We know in your gracious sovereignty that you have her in her hands. We pray that your spirit is comforting her in ways that we can't even understand. But we know it's in your hands. We certainly pray for healing. We pray for her to, uh, to come back to us uh, well and whole. We pray for the family. We know you tell us that... Uh, when we need you, you'll be there. So we just pray for your spirit to touch our hearts and our souls and help us remember that it'll be your time. We pray for the surgeons, for the doctors, for everybody, the nurses certainly that are taking care of her, but mostly for her heart and her body that you will heal both and, and give her comfort. We pray in Jesus' name. I'll get there. Okay. In every generation, including ours, you have those that attack the Bible. And when this happens, it's been one of my goals in our Bible studies and our, uh, even in our sermons that we're able to do something with it. They undermine its credibility. Um, and it causes people to doubt, you know, because no matter what you're going through, you want the Bible to be true, right? I mean, if Jesus is who he says he was, we've got hope in anything, right? And you get these challenges all over the place. You get historical challenges. They'll say that there's contradictions in the Bible. And if you've been in one of my Bible studies, we go through that, right? We try to, we do it with the, even the senior high. Try to figure out how, what's a good way of looking at this. We've, I've done this with the, the uh, nativity accounts. People say Matthew and Luke don't line up. You know, they do. If you just look at it and read, it's not that hard. Then there's scientific uh, criticism that, you know, the Bible is anti-science. We have talking snakes and global floods and virgin births, which we just talked about. We have miracles. We have resurrections. You know, can't, 
can't have that, right? Well, there's presuppositions that you can't have miracles. Well, then obviously you wouldn't believe in miracles, would you? Um, but we have good reasons to think these are true. We have, uh, there's even places that we'll use in our Bible studies that take science and the, and, the, and the Bible and show how they do line up. The Bible, for the most part, is not a scientific text. You know, um, it doesn't tell us things about, so it's not supposed to be science. It's supposed to be about faith. Now, it's, supposed to, it's not anti-science in any way. Uh, you get a, a lot of good things there. And again, I'm not going to answer all those today, but you know, if you get in Bible studies, life groups, there's things online that some really good uh, resources out there. Uh, and then you get moral challenges. They'll say, well, this is a big one with atheists today. They'll say, well, slavery is allowed in the Bible. But if you were in our Deuteronomy class, when how long did it take us to get through Deuteronomy? Probably longer than it took to write. I'm telling you that. Uh, couple years. It's a long book. Uh, but you, you started looking at what slavery was like back then. It was, it was not, it was, you, you brought the person into your family. It was, you know, and they were either going to live under a bridge or be with you. It wasn't one bad. It was good. If you remember, Abraham, was before Isaac was born, was going to give his, all of his inheritance to, uh, to his servant because he's part of the family. You know, so you know, and then they talk about genocide and all this kind of stuff, and you, you look in there, and, and none of that really holds water. But the problem is, so many Christians don't know the Bible well enough to answer these, and that's hard. And, and that's why we just, you know, I know I do that a lot. You know, get in there, read it, understand it, try to try to be biblically uh, literate and not biblically illiterate. It'll always make your faith better. You know, no matter what you go through, if you know the Bible better, you know God better. If you know God better, all those storms will be easier to handle because you know the promises that are in there. So, um, so these are out there. So how do we respond? And this, we're going to do this the next couple of weeks too, but this is just for this week. One of one I've heard, and, and it just, I just don't do this. How about that? Uh, this is called circular reasoning. Uh, it starts out with, how do you know it? Somebody asked someone who believes the Bible, how do you know it is the word of God? And then they'll say, because it says so. And then they'll say, well, how do you know it's true? It, because it's the word of God. It's a circle. It doesn't tell them anything, right? You're not making any evidence that it's true other than you think so. Um, I mean, you could put anything in there, couldn't you? You could put the Vedas from Hinduism. How do you know they're the word? Of, well, because it says so. Oh, well, then how do you know they're true? Well, we because it's, it's the word of the gods. Same thing, you put anything you want in there. It, it doesn't prove anything. It's also called begging the question. It's essentially a, a philosophical uh, fallacy that you already, you, you assume the answer without giving any evidence. The question's already been answered. So don't do this. We've got good, good ways to deal with this. Um, and we're going to look at some of those today with the testimony is being evidence. The testimony, so the word testimony is used a lot of times, but we're just, this is the, the testimony of those who wrote and those who lived and those who knew Jesus and those who knew uh, uh, the gospel. So the first is eyewitness testimony. And this is, in, in the court of law, this is the best. If you can get an eyewitness, you can get a conviction, um, especially if you can get more. We even have that in the Old Testament, the testimony of two witnesses, two or three. If you have enough witnesses, eyewitness testimony is the most important. And the New Testament is written by eyewitnesses of, uh, or their close associates. Second Peter 1, for we did not follow 
cleverly devised myths when we made, made known the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, he's probably talking about the transfiguration there, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mount. So when you read through 1 Peter, 2 Peter, when you read through the Gospel of Mark, which is pretty much Peter's words, you're getting an eyewitness. Now, it doesn't make it true, but it, it makes it more likely to be true because it's an eyewitness. He was there. I mean, could you imagine that? You know, it's not like, you know, there's those histor- historistic claim, oh, this was written thousands or hundreds of years later. It wasn't. This stuff is early. It was written very, very close to when it happened. Uh, and, and God saw to it that. Uh, First John, written by John, you know, uh, the disciple, the only one that was left at the cross, the one that set by Jesus, called the disciple Jesus loved because he understand, he understood the love of God. He starts his first letter, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was from the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. He just beats that today. We heard it. We saw it. We even touched him. I mean, I don't know what he's talking about there. Maybe that's the resurrection when he, you know, touch. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a spirit here. I'm just a spirit. Or heck, maybe they were arm wrestling. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what he's talking about there with the touching. But they, were, they walked with him. They were his friends. John and Peter were in that inner three along with James. Um, and I think, uh, so again, they're asking us to t- trust their eyewitness testimony. So then how do we do that? Well, we have to look at it. Luke focuses on this too. He says that, you know, many have done uh, accounts of this and tried to come up with, uh, uh, write down what's there, but I'm going to do this so that you can be certain of the truth. That's why he wrote. And we find out more and more as we go through Luke. Uh, you know, Caesar Augustus, when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And, and, uh, and you, you look at this from Luke 3 is an interesting passage. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. So we can, we can kind of get that, right? You know, we know when Tiberius Caesar was reigning. Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, Tetrarch, in the region of Ituria and Trachonitis and Lyonassus, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. If you count, there's 22 different historical people, places, and positions in those two verses. And they all can be traced back to being accurate. You know, this is true. This part is true. And what does that help? Well, if this part is true, maybe the rest of it's true. At least gives you an opportunity to think, is this what was intended. So, eyewitness testimony. This is another embarrassing testimony. You may not have heard of this one. Um, it's a historical principle of embarrassment. I remember studying this in college, and then you got it at the seminary again. People don't lie to make themselves look bad. Do you? <laughs> I don't. If I'm going to lie, it's going to make me look better, not worse. You know, uh, 
And, and the idea, and it's not a foolproof, uh, you know, uh, principle, but it's very good in, in the idea. I mean, you could be nuts. I mean, that's another one, but yeah, be careful with that. Um, usually you can take a test and they'll find out if you're nuts. Um, but they're assumed to be trustworthy. And here's some examples. Um, in Matthew 15, uh, Peter says to him, explain this parable to us. And he said, Jesus said, uh, are you also without understanding? Another way to translate that, are you so dull? And another way to transfer, transfer, or, uh, translate it, you probably already know, is the S word, right? Are you so stupid? You know, that's, I mean, that's kind of the way to put it. Um, well, does this look, make Peter and the disciples look good? Does it make Matthew look good? He's writing this, and he's one of them that Jesus is talking to. You know, if you were going to embellish it and lie, you would say, well, we got it. In fact, he, didn't, he just kind of winked at us, and we understood it all because we're special. You know, that's not the way it was. It's the exact opposite, you know. In Mark, which Peter is the background information to this, and he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? I mean, think about that. If you're, you know, you got a situation, you know, an accident or something, and you're in a waiting room, and somebody comes, hey, would you pray with me? And then you fall asleep. Well, that's kind of not a good thing, and I certainly wouldn't write it in an email. I wouldn't put it on Facebook. But they put it in the text. And so it, it gives some credibility. Why do this? Why make ourselves look bad unless, of course, this is the way it actually happened? And if they're doing this, the principle of embarrassment, they're historical witnesses. Uh, again in Mark, Jesus was teaching his disciples and saying, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Okay, you, you think about that in the hands of men. So he's going to be delivered. Looks like he's going to get arrested. And they will kill him. So you know what that means, right? And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. This is in Mark 9. This is probably in his second year of ministry. But they did not understand and saying they were afraid to ask him. I mean, there's all levels of dull here, folks. It's, it, but again, it's in there because they just they didn't get it. So the testi embarrassing testimony, another reason that we can think maybe this is true. Excruciating testimony. Um, you notice these R's start with E. Um, the, uh, what did it cost the 12 to hold their beliefs? You know, everything. You know, we get James, the one of the inner three, the brother of John, who gets executed under Herod and Acts, probably about 10 years or so after Jesus' resurrection. But we have a lot of, you know, think about Paul, what it cost him. Uh, all these lots of problems, you know. For not lying, they got misunderstood. They got rejection, persecution, torture, and even martyrdom. And there you can, there's books that have been written about what happened to every apostle. Um, and this is tradition. We know James is in the actual text, but, you know, John we know was exiled. Uh, and all the rest got some sort of untimely death. We think Paul and Peter were both executed under Nero, uh, crucified more than likely, um, in 67, 68 A.D. when Nero kind of, well, went nuts. Uh, but again, excruciating testimony. Why continue to lift up Jesus as Savior and Lord second person of the Trinity, the second, uh, the Son of God, the one, the only one by which you can be saved if that's going to kill you if you didn't believe it. And then we have external testimony, and this is mostly archaeological. You've got, for years, and you'll see this in, in uh, 
archaeology and textual evidence a lot, they will unfortunately assume that if we don't have direct evidence that it didn't happen. This is only usually for the Bible. For years, they said, well, this pilot did not exist. We don't have any record of him. Well, then, in 1961, they find a stone with Pilate on there, who was the prefect or governor of Judea at the exact same time that Luke says he was, that Matthew says he was. And then now you don't hear about that anymore. Like, okay, we got evidence for that. Let's go p- complain about something else. But why do that? You know, just because you don't have evidence doesn't mean it didn't happen. Don't have external evidence. I remember a few years back, the History Channel had a, a, a couple, a three-day two hours or six hours on crucifixion and what it was like. It was during Easter time. And the History Channel can sometimes be useful, can sometimes be annoying, but they they try. Um, But they they actually used the text as historical evidence. And I thought that was wonderful. They used other things, but they would say, well, this is what we have outside. And then they'd say, and then, then Luke says this, and they'll say how that lines up. I'm like, well, good for you guys. You're using these gospels as historical evidence. I thought, well, that was kind of nice that they did that. Jerusalem gets excavated a lot, and you've got, you know, three different faiths there, so sometimes it's hard to get to the places you want to be. And so for years and years and years, the the pool of Bethesda, which is in John 5, um, that had these colonnades, you know, John 5, now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which had five roofed colonnades, porches, in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And if you go on, Jesus heals one, um, comes in there kind of incognito and, and does that. Um, well, people said, well, this didn't exist. This is just a story. And then guess what? Uh, they got a chance to excavate that. Um, and when I was over there, boy, that's been 20 years ago, um, you got to see that, and there's the colonnades, and, you know, it's, there it is. And you don't hear about that anymore. Uh, so, is it possible that maybe we, if we have something in the Bible that we don't have evidence for, that maybe we should think maybe it's still possible instead of just assuming it's not because we haven't got it yet? You know, the argument from silence does not always work. Uh, so, you have those different evidences. Now, to just, and this is going to be true for all three sermons, you can't always convince people with these things. That's not your job, really. Uh, if you uh, have been in our tactics class, um, I think a few are in here. What is our job? Anybody remember? What are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to convince everybody? Put a stone in their shoe. Just give them some evidence. You know, you can't get everybody to the foot of the cross in every conversation. Um, if they say, you know, I'd love that. You go to dinner if, and we're going to do the meet and eat again. I think, I guess I'm the, I don't know, I, I didn't remember this in seminary, but I'm the restaurant picker now. <laughs> if anybody wants to take that role, they're welcome to. Uh, so we'll have to figure that out. I'll have to be the hardest decision I make today, I think, but I'll, I'll get her done. But, uh, you know, w- w- when, you, when you think about these things, the, the idea of making the decisions, it, you know, it, it comes to the idea of where are you getting your, your source information? You know, what are you, where are you placing your confidence? So, you know, when, when, when you go back to these things, it comes down to what kind of book is the Bible? Isn't that the key? Is this something we can rely on or not? You know, that's, that's, it's a different book, you know, and we'll talk about that a lot next week. You know, you know, I know I look in here, you guys have read it, a lot of you. It's different, isn't it? I remember reading Luke 
two uh, yesterday or the day before. Yeah, you, you know, you're lucky I was going to preach it on Christmas Eve, and I, I'm like, huh, forgot about that. Never looked at it that way. It's a living book, you know, and we know that. Now, I know that's subjective. So, but you have that, and kind of back to what I was talking about before, putting a stone in their shoe. Just give them the evidence that you have. Whether or not they believe it is up to them. I mean, think about that, that, that uh, verse that talked about, you know, that Jesus said, I'm going to die, uh, I'm going to get arrested, I'm going to die, I'm going to raise again, and they didn't get it. Well, it's probably more spiritual there than anything else. They just didn't, they couldn't fathom Jesus getting killed. Uh, so you put a stone in there. Another thing in that class that was very helpful, so you just try to give them the evidence. Uh, whether they believe it or not, you know, it's kind of up to them, and they need the Spirit to help them anyway. But we want to give good objective evidence. The other thing in that class I really like is God gifts people to do harvest, right? That they go out, missionaries, some people, you know, they go out and they're just good at evangelizing and that they've been gifted to do that. But yet we're told to, to, to be ready to give an answer for the reason that we have. Most people are gardeners, not harvesters. You can garden. All of you can. You can you can just get into relationships with people and just talk about your faith and put a stone in their shoe. You don't have to harvest them. That might be somebody else's job. Now, if you go to eat today to wherever I decide we're going, <laughs> and somebody comes up to you and says, oh, you go to that church up there, you believe in Jesus, could you tell me about what he's all about? Well, you quit gardening and start harvesting. You know, go ahead and tell them. I mean, but that doesn't happen that often, does it? It usually takes some time. You plant seeds. Um, and, and I've had that happen. I'm sure you have too, where people have come to faith through talking to them. But guess what? You start finding out you just are, you're just grabbing low-hanging fruit there. Somebody else has done the work. It's like, thank you. You know, well, might be on an airplane where you just talk a little bit about your faith and the person looks like they don't give a hoot. But maybe six or seven conversations later, that person gets to harvest. The, and that's just be faithful. You know, give what you can. So, so what kind of book is the Bible? Is it a supernatural book by God to men, or is it a naturalistic book by men about God? And in my opinion, of all the different denominations, of all the different Roman and Orthodox and Charismatic and Evangelical, and all, this is your line of demarcation for churches. We're A. And, you know, when we have kids go to college, if they're, if I say, find an A. <laughs> find, find it. I don't care if they're E free or not. Find a church that believes A. Now, if they're wackadoodle too much, you don't want to go there. But, but for the most part, A is what we're looking at, right? This is what, well, why do we believe that it's a supernatural book by God to men? Not just a naturalistic book by a man about God. We'll hit this really hard in the last week. But the Bible has supernatural prophecy. That's one thing. It makes predictions about future that comes to pass that are accurate and precise. I'm just going to give you a couple. There's a pamphlet by Rose Publishing, Hendrick Dixon Publishing now. A hundred, I think it's a hundred prophecies fulfilled by Jesus. This is a pamphlet, and I think I've got it on my shelf. If not, you can get on there. Or I think it's four bucks. Um, best four bucks you'll spend. It's just kind of nice to have. Here's a couple. This is Psalm 22, written around 1000 BC by David. It talks about crucifixion. For dogs encompass me. Now, that would be Gentiles. Um, they didn't, that's 
very clear in the psalm. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Crucifixion had not been invented anywhere near this time. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Kind of cool that happened a thousand and thirty years later. And Isaiah 53 gives a kind of theological significance of this. 700 B.C., for he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Why did he die? Because of our sins. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Which clearly is spiritual renewal of soul. All this long before. And so you do have scholars now that say, well, this must have been written later because there's no way they could get this right. Like, well, yeah, if it's not supernatural, there was no way they could get this. But if it is, then we can believe it. And it's a supernatural fighter. I kind of like this. It has survived time and attempts to wipe it out. And you've got its own internal testimony about that. Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus says, but my words will not pass away. Do you ever think about that when you open a Bible? That thing's old. Maybe not the Bible you got. The one you got for Christmas is probably new. But the words themselves, that's old stuff, folks. God's been protecting it, making sure we can have it. Many, many manuscripts. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, it can't stand it. We don't have it. Second Timothy, and because I preach the good news, I am suffering and have been chained like a criminal, but the word of God cannot be chained. So there's a supernatural happening that we don't have to do anything about. I mean, I mean, you can make sure you keep your Bible, you know, off the floor and stuff. That's good. But really, it, it, it passes down. You've got Diocletian was a was an emperor that did some persecution of Christians, and then Constantine's kind of right after this, and it got better. But he was trying to get rid of all Christianity, and he said, I have completely exterminated the Christian writings from the face of the earth. I missed a few. <laughs> we still have it. And we have it, and it goes back. We have old, old, old copies. This is more attested than any book uh, that's ever been written. But what's the most powerful persuader for you? What convinces most people... Before all this evidence, I think it's that you encounter the book yourself. You know, it's good to have this objective evidence. It helps people. It may or may not, they may or may not follow it. But just let get them into it. Tim Barnett would stand to reason. The most powerful evidence for the Word of God is the Word of God. You can just get people in. That's why we'll give in. If you don't have one, we'll give you one. We don't give a lot of stuff because we don't want to make you dependent on us. But... If you want a Bible, we'll get you a Bible, and it'll be a study Bible, and it'll be a helpful Bible, and we'll invite and chastise and browbeat you to come to Bible study. Because you might just learn something in a group more than you would by yourself. Um, and your insight can be helpful. Uh, every Bible study I do, somebody will say, well, I was looking at it this way, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes a lot more sense than I was thinking. I mean, it happens, you, know, you learn from each other, iron sharpens iron. I say. But that's it, just encountering the book. If it is, as you know, Second Timothy says, God breathed, then it should make a difference in your soul. And so it's both an objective evidence that we've got the text we need, we've got all this outside evidence, we've got embarrassing testimony, I went, all that stuff, but it's that subjective Holy Spirit that that makes the difference. And you get those two together, it really gets kind of cool. Uh, so, Jesus simply spoke and taught when you see this. 
in Mark, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught as one who had authority and not as his scribe. In John 7, 46, the officers answered because they were supposed to arrest him, but no one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered, have you also been deceived? And in John 7, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is this man, how does he have this learning when he has never studied? He didn't go to one of their best seminaries, right, one of their schools, but I guarantee you he studied. What do you think he was doing for 30 years? You know. He spoke like there's something different. And when somebody's seeking truth about their life and they encounter the words of Jesus, something happens. It changes hearts, both the text itself and the spirit that comes in. So think about that as we finish up our Christmas and luck to a new year here in just a, less than a week. You know, have you read Jesus for yourself? Because why is it so important that we can trust the Bible? Because God has decided in his infinite wisdom to reveal himself primarily in his son, but right behind that in his word. So knowing it will help you know him better. And that's really what you're here for in the first place. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your word. Uh, thank you for giving us so many uh, wonderful reasons to, to believe it. Uh, may we be diligent so we can help others that maybe struggle with its truth. Uh, we thank you for the fact that your spirit is the author, and so even though human authors were used, that when we read it, we know we're getting it directly from you. Uh, may we believe it. Uh, may you help us understand it. And maybe even more importantly, may we be able to proclaim it and live it as we continue the rest of this year and into the next. Amen.